He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Coming to you live here on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip, the one and only John Paz. And on the triple threat, we are joined by the captain of our football team. He is the one and only former ECW world champion. He is the franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to a very special episode number 46. It is, and I, just a quick apologies to everybody for having to miss last week. Had some uh, uh, dire personal business, family business to take care of, and I apologize to our guest and to you guys and the, everybody listening. But glad to be back here for number forty-six. Hard to believe we're honing in on that big five-two, that big one-year anniversary. So pretty damn cool to still be here. Appreciate everybody listening. Absolutely. The show's evolved. The show's been doing some pretty cool things, always uh, kind of striking while the iron's hot, and we couldn't be any happier to welcome in tonight a special guest talking about our show, our TPT Contu Wrestling Convention coming to Richmond, Virginia on Saturday, May 19th. We are very happy to welcome in the enforcer, C.W. Anderson. C.W., thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. Guys, thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a joy being a part of this. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's uh, TMPT Con 2. It's our wrestling convention the way we want to run it. We've got such a stellar list of guys that are going to be in attendance, and you're going to be with ATD Promotions along with Two Cold Scorpio and just throwing in all the other names that we've got, like Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and Eric Bischoff and Mikey Whipwreck and all the other great names that are going to be there. It's really cool to have you added into the fray because uh, we've got sort of 
uh, sort of an extreme reunion, but I guess getting you down to the Richmond area, it's not too far of a drive for you, but are you looking forward to getting to Richmond here in a couple weeks? I am. I'm, I'm looking forward. I got a show later that night, but yeah, I'm looking forward to coming to Richmond. It's only about a three hour trip for me, which is not bad. You know, to a, to a wrestler that's been on the road for 20 some years, three hours, dropping the bucket. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's a stone throw, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's the ten and twelve hour ones that you you just you, sh- you put your head down like, okay, let's get it done for three hours. Yeah, I'm yeah. ready to go for this one. <laughs> and yeah, and I gotta say, so I just said it before we went on the air to CW, and and I gotta kind of refresh uh, the two man power trip of wrestling uh, archive here. We had you on in December 2016. And uh, we filled Shane in on what we had talked about and kind of what transpired afterwards. And we're going to kind of dive into that here in a few minutes because uh, our interview, which seemingly felt like just another one of our regular interviews that we do, we do pretty long form, pretty detailed interviews. We were even chit-chatting some baseball by the end of it. You know, we kind of ran the gamut with you. But there were some comments that we were just really, it's said in passing about the final days of ECW and with Paul Heyman. Uh, that kind of caused Paul Heyman to have a little bit of a meltdown. And uh, before we get to UCW, I just got to bring John. I want to bring John in here because this is the crazy part about it. We recorded the interview. We didn't get a chance to broadcast it right away. And about six weeks later, I was out. I was looking at houses, and I start getting these frantic text messages from my partner saying, you got to get on Twitter right now. Paul Heyman is legitimately having a meltdown. And, John, I'm going to welcome you in here now. Give us a little bit of a refresher on what those tweets had to say. Oh, it was the best. The best is that uh, CW just made the comments like, oh, you know, Paul kind of wasn't really there for us towards the end. It wasn't really anything really negative or, like, it was just a, a fact. It was just the truth of the matter. And it was literally yeah. watching Heyman's Twitter. It's like, okay, one text where he, like, blew up and went crazy for no reason. Okay, all right, one text – or one tweet. Okay, all right, then it was two. Then it was three. Then it was four. Then it was 13. <laughs> literally, then it was 13. Then it was 15. Then it was – I would think it was, like, ended up being, like, 16 uh, tweets in a row, I, him just having a complete and utter meltdown. Uh, I yeah. just thought it was hilarious. Like, wow, uh, one little comment really – something bothered him and I think struck a chord. Maybe uh, some truth was told that day. Oh, there was a there was a there was a lot of truth told that day, and yeah, and I think that's the problem he had. He's made um, a living of trying to protect what he thought was ECW and what he did to save ECW. And all I was doing was repeating something that was made by the higher ups at ECW. It wasn't even made to me. You know, it didn't come straight from me. I didn't make it up. And then he had this huge meltdown. The the biggest problem I've had so many problems with it, but. I've been saying this, doing this same exact interview about him and about it since 2001, and then he finds con- he, then he finds problems with it. I think in the business we call that hitting a nerve. Yes, <laughs> I think. Yes. I, think that's <laughs> I definitely struck a nerve because there was so much that went on from the tweets afterwards, from the stuff I've got from Tommy Dreamer and Danny Doran, because I had no idea that he was going off like this. And the things he said in some ways were hurtful to begin with. And then I got pissed off. Um, yeah. And there were so many of the smart marks that were on his side that don't know a damn thing about what we did at ECW in the behind the scenes. Right. Stuff. They're just right. listening to the Paul Heyman side of it. Don't They don't listen to the guys that got left behind. Um, yeah. So – 
when I made my retort, which is a was a very long response. And if you took time to read it, which I'm sure a lot of them didn't because they want to hear one side of it. They don't want to hear both sides of it because they're going to believe Paul Heyman because he's on TV and, you know, C.W. Anderson was the $75 Tommy Dreamer stooge that he called me, which was funny as shit, by the way. Um, <laughs> I thought that was the best he could come up with. But anyway, um, nobody responded. It was crickets after my response because everything I said was 100% the truth, 100%. Yeah. And what if you if if you any of you guys got the High Spots Wrestling Network, you can go and see the Legends of the Extreme season two, to where we talk about uh, road stories, and it's myself, New Jack, and Roadkill with Mike Johnson, and and that's typical. New Jack goes off on a tangent, and all of a sudden starts telling the same exact story I was telling, and then Mike Johnson looks at me and goes, "CW, you have some kind of response for that?" And Jack said, basically, like, "What's up?" I said, just recently, Paul Heyman and I have been in a Twitter war about what you just said. He said that I was the one that was lying about this. But he never come back to New Jack because he knows New Jack would beat the brakes off of him. (laughs) (laughs) I believe Um, you definitely hit hit a nerve. What did you think? Do you think that he was just pissed because the truth kind of just hit him all of a sudden, like and he felt guilty, or what, what do you think was going through his mind at that? Point? I, I don't, I don't think. And, and you know, I always preface when I say all these things. I, I have nothing but admiration for because Paul Heyman took a chance on me. He and Tommy Dreamer to give me my job at ECW when they didn't have to, um, and made me, you know, the guy that I am today. It was because of them, and, and you know, they opened the door, they let me in, and then my talent and my wrestling skills took over, uh, and, and did the rest. So. It's not nothing. I've never, I've never buried Paul Heyman. I've never, you know, thought about the money situations and, you know, how you, you know, just to, for leaving us high and dry. I've always said the only thing you could have done when you were going to close ECW was to show us as respect as men and told us we were, we were done. Not us watching you on Raw with Jim Ross, thinking we're going to have a pay per view and hear you on WWE, leaving us out to dry. Um, it's, 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 it's called being a man. And I would have, if it would have been me, I would have, I would have done the same thing. Shane Douglas would have said it because Shane Douglas has been very outspoken the whole time about this, and uh, rightfully so. But um, I just don't think he. I think he wants that that version of what WWE tells sometime about uh, you know the rise and fall of ECW. They don't never do the ones that were left behind and talk about us. You know the money we were owed, the times we were right. you know drove to go to Canada and were owed thousands of dollars, and we had the largest house in ECW history, and he still couldn't afford to pay us. Um, how he owed everybody money, we'd get the speech every three or four weeks that we couldn't pay us this time because of a certain reason. It was always an excuse, and we still believed him and believed the ECW product, and we you know went down with the ship. But. Yeah. Because I made that out there, you know, because the, the whole thing was I said he was out in the in, in California filming the movie Rollerball when he was supposed to be out there. He told us he was out there at the USA Network trying to save us. And I, was, I guess I should have prefaced it as a rumor, but I just said that's what was told to me by the higher-ups at ECW. They said this, not me. I was just repeating what they said, but amazed, it's amazing that the higher-ups have said that. He never had a damn problem with them. It was just little old CW, the one that don't never cause anything. He's a little quiet, church mouse. And then, you know, I don't, you know, ECW's been closed since 2001. I don't, I'm not holding a grudge. I'm not bitter. Hell, I went on to have a great Japanese career afterwards. Um, 
I just miss ECW and miss, and I just hate the way it closed and the way it ended. You know, there's a lot of guys that didn't show up at the last Arkansas loop because Paul owed him money. I was there. You owe me money, but I believed in ECW, and I and he, I still uh, respected him enough to be there when he asked me not to go to WCW after Massacre on 34th Street because there was rumors I was going to WCW. I told him I would never leave him because I was uh, faithful to the people that would give me my job because that's how I was raised with respect. Yeah. And I would have never lived it. I would have stayed at ECW forever. I would have never left. Yeah, I think that's a, <clears throat> I think that's a mantra across most of us. Uh, CW is that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we were loyal to a guy, and, and and to give Paul, like you said, his his proper due, uh, he gave us a platform that nobody else would give us, but. That's a two-way street. That's like, a, you know, like the revolving door in, at the front of the department store, you know, the glass door that spins round and round. Okay, you put something in, but as I recall, as I'm trying to scratch my head, I don't recall Paul Hammond going out to the ECW ring and having a five-star match or executing a five-star angle. That was what was done on the back of the talent. And... The, the shame of it is, is when, uh, I was completely unaware of any of this. And, and whenever I saw the links that, uh, uh, that Chad and JP had sent to me, I was stunned by that because yeah. I, I, you know, the, the thing to me was like Paul, I had never seen Paul stab out like that. Uh, he had taken a couple of shots at me, you know, the, something about my, my body was broken down and couldn't go, whatever. Well, if, if it was, ask yourself the question, why, Paul? But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, CW, and as I think anybody knows, it has a, a conscious mind as sentient. Paul loved to be, Paul loved the adulation. And he got a lot of that in ECW, deservedly so. Right. But when any criticism came in, uh, you know, it, it was like the evil ex-wife or mother-in-law that suddenly reared the horns and how dare you say something negative about me. Um, you know, when I left there, and, and for me, this isn't like some kind of a plug or whatever else. It's just stating a fact. I was owed $144,000. Half of that, over half of that, was money that I was owed directly for running ECW shows and promoting ECW shows in Pittsburgh, West Virginia, Ohio. Um, and, you know, so it, it, whatever you want to say, you could say, say la vie, whatever, but to try to take a shot at me after what I had put into ECW and burning bridges, as you know, ECW, burning a bridge in this business is a smart thing to do. But right. to do that and then suddenly take start taking shots and then, like, move on to the next guys and then take the shot at you guys because you had the audacity of asking a certain question, uh, it, it's, it's perplexing to me. It, it's all that's what's wrong with this business. And, you know, people always talk about how we drank Paul's Kool-Aid. It wasn't that. It was that we were given a platform and allowed to perform without being told what to say, how to say it, when to say it. And same thing in the ring. We were given complete creative leeway yeah. in the ring. 
And, you know, so when I hear that we drank Paul's Kool-Aid, it drives me crazy because I will forever be thankful to Paul for the platform that he gave me. But by the same token, you know, that, that wasn't a one-way street. Uh, there, there was a give and take there that, and not just with me, with all of every single talent in the ECW. And what became the ECW chant, I think, was built on the backs of Shane Douglas, C.W. Anderson, Mikey Whipwreck, Jerry Lynn, Taz, so many of us that we didn't deserve to get that sort of backhanded, hey, fuck yeah. you if you didn't like what happened. Yeah, yeah. definitely the Andy. Go ahead, guys. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, no, no, it, the thing with the, the quotes, too, and just looking at it, I mean, you know, I, I'm almost been wanting to clear our name because we did it so uh, with no malicious intentions whatsoever. We put out the press release like we do every single episode, and I just thought I was talking about the final days of ECW when I put it out. And, and it rereading it, yeah, and rereading it, even if you, first of all, if you A, listen to the clip, B, if you read it, and C, if, and like you said, you've told the same story on other shows. I even debated on the fact of putting it in our press release because I have heard you talk about it before. So I was like, ah, you know, well, let's see how this goes. But I, I always kind of joke and say, you know, our, our little uh, engine that could show kind of always finds its way into some kind of uh, strife or some kind of conflict. And I felt so terrible about this because he started going so low on some of the things he was saying, and then he was bringing Brock into it, which I was shocked about, that he's bringing yeah. Lesnar's name into the fray, and it was so uncalled for. And, and, and really, again, back to the press release, you, I, my question in the press release that I was trying to cover was you talking about Steve Carino joining the Performance Center. This was just an add-on to the whole entire thing. So I, I just, I, like I said, I'm just surprised with how far it went. Um, but with everything that you said, I'm literally reading the quotes as you're talking, and you're saying verbatim the same stuff about going to Arkansas and that everybody was talking about it was the last show and, and Carino wasn't there and RBD wasn't there, but you still mm-hmm. felt in your gut that Paul Heyman was going to pull that rabbit out of the hat and you had 100% faith in him. And I'm trying to see yep. where he could have gone to such the, the, the quote, extreme and going so crazy and, and retorting in such a negative way. I still, I don't, two years later, I, I'm still shocked over this whole thing. It, it, it may have been the, 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 the thing with me saying, you know, he wasn't out there saving the company in California. He was out there filming Rollerball. And because he told us, he even said, I am out there in California and you're on the USA Network trying to save ECW and get us back on the, on the network. And that's what was told. To, he told us that in a meeting several times. And then it, the thing that was told, he said, you know, Paul was out there filming Rollerball. He was never out there trying to save ECW. So I think that's where he went off and why he bought, brought Brock's name in there. Brock ain't got a damn thing to do with, with what was going on between me and Paul Heyman and all the ECW uh-huh. people. The, the one thing that I, I had the biggest problem with is, one of the many things along with that is, all the people from social media, why don't you, instead of taking that guy aside, talk to the ones that were left with owed money. I get you. I bet you don't know what it's like to be owed the amount of money that Shane Douglas is owed, which my, my amount is nothing like Shane Douglas's, but left money like that, told you don't have a job anymore, something that I worked my ass off to make a name for myself, and then I finally got my opportunity by walking in off the streets at ECW and getting my job. I wasn't asked for a tryout. I walked in off the street and got my job. I busted my ass to get that job to make a name for myself, sign my rights away for a video game. For two video games, I got no royalties off of it. 
just so I could be on a video game, just because I was a part of ECW. I wanted to do what I could to show up my support. And then to be left high and dry like that, after all that time, not in a big kiss my ass, nothing, yeah. with the money owed. Work, yeah, I've worked with my back blown out. I mean, Shane's worked with his arms screwed up. Um, Gary Wolf worked with a broken neck. We all did things at ECW that none of these other companies would. Because we, it wasn't, it wasn't we were crazy. It's just we believed and loved that product so much. Yeah, that, and those fans is, don't, they, they don't, they don't see that. They don't see. Excuse me, one second, Shane. They don't see that part of. It. They're gonna believe Paul because he's on TV. They're not gonna go and look at the real side of it. Just like how they were never showed the real side of it on the rise and fall, or and all the other stuff they put out there. Us driving, yeah. you know, because the the first eight months, and I said this in my retort, the first eight months, I drove to every show: Chicago, New Orleans, uh, Miami, or Fort Lauderdale, New York. I drove by myself, did not get paid. We worked four nights a week. I would work one night, making seventy five dollars a night. One night, didn't get paid for the other three nights. Still had to pay for gas, hotel, my own food. Sometimes I was sleeping on Jeff Jones's hotel room floor using my clothes as a pillow with no blanket. He, Jeff Jones still charged me for part of the room. Incredible. Sleeping in my truck. Yeah, how do you, in my mind, how do you say to somebody uh, that's doing that, how do you take any shot at that person? Uh, you know, to me, it, it screams out that you're taking advantage of somebody who's trying to live their dream. And I can't think of a more disgusting thing. You know, if I, if I know Chad or uh, JP want to be a, a recording artist and I've got connections and, mean, and I see them doing all those types of the same types of things that we all did in ECW, and then after they don't make it, deriding them afterwards. You know, after the, the, their attempt fails or the company fails, whatever, and then taking shots at them afterwards for having driven all over the country and doing the similar types of things. How do you do that? I mean, how do you sit there and say, you know, for, for the fans, you know, I understand ECW fans see ECW as a picture that they saw on their television screen 20-something years ago. And... In, in that regard, I, I still recall the wrestling I saw as a kid, and it still is burned and in, seared into my brain, seeing Bruno Sammartino and Dominic Danucci and, and all of these guys. But how do you look at a guy, uh, or you know, when, I, when I say guy, I mean, as I've said multiple times in this show, that to me, like when I say one of the boys, that's, the Francines, the CWs, the Mikey Whipwrecks, that's everybody that's uh, all-encompassing. But how do you then take a shot afterwards um, and make it sound as though there was some condescension on that side? In other words, CW, uh, I think you're a piece of shit because blah, 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 and fill in the blank. When you do all those things, and you did all those things, and in large part, not just because of the company, but for Paul Heyman, who was running that company. And you know, that's the part that just boggles my mind, and it screams out of all the things that I've said have been wrong with this business from the day I stepped into it, that, you know, 
without going into some tangent. You know, you have these guys that kiss the boss's ass, the stooges and, you know, all the politicking and all the rest of that stuff. I, I, I just don't understand how somebody then takes a shot at somebody having put in that time to support the company that he was trying to build. It boggles my mind. Maybe he wants to be made later this great savior that tried did everything he could to save ECW when in the end he just saved himself. Well, he, he, they were, he seemed he turned out pretty well, didn't he? Yeah, he he did. He turned out pretty well, and while the left off, the rest of us again got left behind, and <laughs> you know, in the latter in the end of it, he wasn't there, he was hardly ever there for house shows. If it weren't for Tommy Dreamer, to hell, there's no telling where we'd ended up. Um, in the end, he stopped showing and why up. Why is he saying like stooging to Dreamer? Like that part was weird too. It's like stooging here, to Dreamer. Here, here was the Tommy and I were really close because uh, in the traveling clique it was myself, Jack Victory, Steve Carino, Louis Dangerously, Sign Guy Dudley, uh, Tommy Dreamer, and Francine. We all rode together, so I was always around them. And Tommy and I were again were really close, and Tommy wanted to make me and be the net guy and wanted to feud with me. So I was always around Tommy. Now, that's maybe where he got that from because we were all together at all the times. But he called me Tommy Dreamer's $75 low-level stooge. You're, you're talking to the guy that wouldn't put his boots on until I knew I was wrestling in the beginning, but I sat in my corner and didn't speak. I was scared to death. I didn't run around the locker room acting like an idiot. I didn't go and say anything. I went in there and I was quiet for the first year I was there because that's how I was taught. You go in there, you don't make an ass of yourself. You go in there and sit down and be quiet until you're told what you're doing. Um, So I don't know where he taught before the stooging part came in at. That's probably his another attempt trying to throw another dick because, you know, he said that and and said, yeah, I paid him $75 because that's what a low-level stooge deserves. But this is the same guy that was begging me not to go to WCW and was asking me what kind of money I wanted to keep me at ECW when we were talking contract, but I was only getting, in the end, I was making 200 bucks a night when I was working Rob Van Dam and Dreamer and Steve Carino and Jerry Lynn, who were making, you know, $1,000 a night, stuff like that. I was making 200 bucks a night wrestling those guys. Well, I'm curious when he, when he says the word stooge and, and the way that he uses the connotation of the word or the phrase that he uses. I was in, when I was off doing the color commentary with Joey Styles. I was in the ECW production facility uh, the night that a phone call came in. And when the phone rang, uh, Paul hit the speaker button and said, Paul Heyman. And I clear as day heard Vince McMahon's voice say, Paul. And Paul about broke his back trying to get up out of that seat to pick that phone up and shut the speaker phone off. Well, it was too late at that point. I heard his voice. And the one thing I knew that Vince wasn't doing was he wasn't calling Paul Heyman to ask him for the fucking weather. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I knew at that point that there was a shitload more going on than any of us were aware of at that point. And Paul spent a good 45 minutes to an hour outside of the production facility, uh, you know, the, 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 the studio, and walking around and talking on the phone, but never near enough to where you could hear, and then came back in and tried to go right back to 
the shot that he was working on. And while he was out of the room, I said to Ron and Charlie and Joey Styles, what the fuck is that motherfucker doing calling our studio? And none of them had any clue. And so at that point, when Paul walked back in and tried to go about his business as if that hadn't happened, uh, I I said, Paul, look, I I don't know what that jackass just called here for, but I'm going to tell you something. And you can listen to it or you don't have to listen to it. But that motherfucker will stab you in the heart the split second he needs to. And, you know, and he did. I mean, you know, I've heard multiple stories about how Paul was treated when he first uh, went to or continued on with WWE. Um, You know, but it's just the the one thing, my, my takeaway from all this after having read those stories and the things that, uh, Chad and JP sent me and the things that I had lived through myself was that everybody on that in that company from the top of the card to the middle of the card to the bottom of the card laterally Ron and Charlie included everybody on Atlas Security nobody it, it, it deserved to get a stab in the back and you know every one of us had contributed things to that company that was done obviously not for the money. It was done for the the, the uh, success of the company. And so now after that, to take shots at somebody, whether it's you or anybody else on the uh, that was uh, there at the time, to me is so smarmy. <laughs> it's it, it's almost apropos that he's working for the WWE because. Right. This is the kind of thing that I would expect Vince McMahon to do, and wouldn't shock you know wouldn't shock me in the least. But unfortunately, I like all of us thought Paul was different, and really believed in what we were doing on ECW. And uh, like I always have mentioned, any interview I've ever done, I, none of us found out that it was far too late to correct the ship. The ship was already heading down. The Titanic had hit the, the iceberg and there was no way to save it. Um, I'm just sorry to hear that you had to go through the, all that. Uh, incredible it, to me. It, it took, it took a day for the, the shock. I guess it was a shock that he would uh, come at me like he did. But after the shock went off, it was just it were, it were my response that I was always worried about and putting that out there. Um, it, 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 it shows you the type of person that he ends up being when he attacks somebody like me. Um, yeah, and I think I think I was more like I'm still more light in the locker room than he is, so everybody was taking my <laughs> side on it. So um, I believe that completely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the one of the, the the type of person that we dealt with on the, the lives we got was one of the most infamous stories from being around him was Jazz Jazz's check didn't show up one night. She didn't get paid, so he was on the phone with FedEx cussing them out. He was on his flip phone cussing FedEx out, supposedly, when his phone rings. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> and Debbie Beaumont, who you know who Debbie, God rest her soul, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. she tried to cover for him and say he had one of those new type of phones that could ring while he's still on the phone with them. <laughs> oh, that's great. Is that fed the beast? You know, that, that, yeah. like Debbie defending him, that fed the beast. 
that allowed him to, to you know, the, the one I hadn't heard that one about the phone ringing, but the one we always got was, you know, he would say like Shane, you know, the, 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 I sent the check and he'd start, you know, calling out like a, a tracking number to you. And within a second or two, you'd realize there were too many numbers and letters in it, you know, it was, <laughs> and he was, and, and, and not making this up at all. Paul would say, when you'd say to him, Paul, there's, there's too many numbers and letters. He would say, take, take off the last three. <laughs> and, and, you know, just so insane. <laughs> the yeah. first, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind, but so completely in hindsight, looking back at a, at a snapshot at ECW, and as special as ECW was, but those of us that endured the, the dark side of ECW, um, looking at that and seeing, you know, the story you're telling and the things that I've seen, uh, it, it just goes so consistently together. You know, it, it's seamless. Yeah, there was one where the, the night we'd worked in Canada, he said he couldn't pay us because it was our largest house. But the reason he couldn't pay us is because they all paid in Canadian money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it takes a long time to convert Canadian money. I, yeah. When I go to the border, I mean, that I don't know, that two, three minutes it takes them to convert it over is yeah. so overbearingly <laughs> onerous that... <laughs> well, and Car- Carino chimed up and said, well, I got part citizenship. And, you know, because he's, he's Steve's Canadian, he said I can take t- at least ten thousand dollars over with me. <laughs> <laughs> and what did Paul say to that? I, you know, I for the life of me, I cannot remember what his response was. I know it was stuttering and stammering, but he could not. Re- <laughs> uh, could not. Re- <laughs> hey, tremendous. hey, C- CW, I got a question for you too. With with a lot of the fallout. Was there was there almost became a divide between the the ECW crews and there was people who were coming out in defense of Paul, but then there were people who were coming out in defense of you. And now was that another part of like the whole upsetting thing? Was that it turned into you know these innocent quotes turned into Paul Heyman's meltdown to then have the ECW crew kind of turning against each other and it was the Paul Heyman crew versus the CW crew. Yeah, it, it was showed the I guess the Paul Heyman I guess, from from what I remember the Paul Heyman crew were a lot of the ones that got taken care of. <laughs> at WWE. There's no surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're the, all the ones that got that were on my side were the were the true ones that got left behind, and the ones that didn't end up with jobs at WWE for you know a few years at a time. Mm. So go figure. I think that was the one. I think that was the one because one of my response, one of them was Don Marie, that was in the in defense of Paul. Um, <laughs> which, you know, if I'm not mistaken, she got taken care of up there for a while. So she didn't have to – she wasn't left owed money or she didn't have to scrape and find things and had to go work overseas for seven years and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, and I and I love Dawn. I, I think the word of her, I'd never had one crossword with her. Uh, but yeah. you could tell the ones that were on Paul's side was the ones that kind of were on, on that side of it and not the ones that were left holding the bag you know, holding the door when he just showed up at Raw. Yeah, I had heard, I had heard these stories for years and never firsthand. They, they, it was always, you know, through some website or through some fan or, you know, some second or third hand way. Uh, 
But I remember whenever I left there, and you know, I'm, I'm, you can go talk to Chris Chetty and Danny Doring. Uh, when I left there the last time, I went into the dressing room because I, I knew exactly what was going on. And I went into the dressing room and explained to everybody what was going on. And I said, you know, it, it, you know, cover your ass because this is what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I didn't expect anybody to follow me out the door. You know, that wasn't my right. – because I knew that would, that, that would never happen. But I wanted them to all – because I knew that a lot of them had young kids at the time, uh, you know, had families. They were just getting started off. And thankfully, at that point in my career, I was at the point where I could at least weather through a few bad months. Uh, but I, I just go back all, all the while thinking – you know, all the good memories I have of ECW are predicated on how much we, the talent, all put into that. You know, oh, yeah. nothing, you know clearly giving Paul his due, you know, that he gave us a platform, Todd Gordon as well. Uh, but, that, again, I, I, I see any relationship as a two-way street. So, like, I always, and I guess the easy summation of that is, I treat people like I, they treat me. You treat me well, I'll I'll be the best employee for you. And but you treat me like shit, Alan Vincent, ma'am. And you got a better chance of getting a mule to run flippity flops like the like the sports entertainment spots I'm seeing today. Uh, <laughs> it ain't happening. It's not going to happen. And uh, the one thing I've always maintained vehemently is that those of us aka the talent in ECW that busted our bodies killed ourselves and in your case drove yourself halfway across the country etc the one thing we did not deserve in that company was to get screwed to screwed with in the end whether it was financially mentally whatever all of us deserve the truth. And when I realized that wasn't happening for me, I, I, I took off and honestly believed that that was just the way Paul dealt with me to get me out the door. I didn't believe, I, I, I couldn't imagine ECW not continuing. To me, it just seemed so entrenched and it had its loyal audience. I couldn't see it faltering. And uh, it breaks my heart to hear that it did, and and these types of stories that went on afterwards. Uh, you, you certainly did not deserve that. No, none of us did. Yeah, it would have been way different if you'd have manned up and sat us down and told us the truth. And done so, you know, there there was another there was another rumor. Again, this is a rumor that that was told to me that somebody was trying to buy us, buy out ECW. And because they wanted 51%, Paul was going to get 49%. He was, uh, and he was still left in control. But since he didn't have the majority, he wouldn't sell it. Again, that's a rumor. I can't clarify that. That's just another thing that was told to me. Um, and I wish he, I wish if that was true, he'd have took up on it because ECW didn't need to go anywhere. And right. I, I was always, I was always under the impression that you know you, you can't close ECW. I mean, it's like part of. The culture. What's wrestling going right. to do without ECW? And I guess we've seen what's happened since everything's been bought out. Yeah, that, that's 
The part that always perplexed me is like, you know, if you look at the WWE, when how much money has been spent on opening the performance center in Orlando and employing all the people down there and soaring it, heating it, cooling it, all those sorts of things. When at that same time, he had Paul Heyman, who was the brains behind BCW, and how many other people there under contract, Taz, Sandman, Raven, you know, there was this, you know, pretty good bulk of the ECW talent that he could have, for a much cheaper price, just, in my thought, just announced that Paul Heyman had repurchased the ECW name and, and went on his own. And the one thing that Paul was great at uh, was creating talent and taking wrestler A and making them a star and getting them entrenched and over with the audience. And, you know, I had a little bit of a back and forth on Twitter a few weeks ago uh, before I got tied up with all this other stuff. Uh, and, you know, somebody tried to give me this about how Vince has created all these stars, and I kept literally lecturing this person, saying, well, that star came from AWA, that star came from Calgary, that star came from UWF and or Mid-South. And uh, that was the one thing that Paul was exemplary at. Yes. And Vince, because Vince had him under contract and all the other guys and how many other of the other guys could have seamlessly gone into that and instead didn't. And, and I, 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 you know, I could give you the explanations on a storyline level, but I also have to ask myself, as somebody who's been in the business and understands the industry, why didn't Vince McMahon do that? And uh, instead of opting to spend all that money on the performance center and starting NXT and all the money it took to get that over and everything else, why not? And and I think Vince McMahon is probably two steps further ahead of Paul than Paul was uh, most of us, which I think is a testament to, yeah. to Paul Heyman. I'll, I'll, you know, Shane, I've always called the group at ECW, we were always called us the land of misfit toys mm-hmm. because we were we were never wanted anywhere else. But Paul was able to take us and see something. I mean, you look at the guys he made, like the group I was there, myself, Roadkill, Danny Doran, Chandy, Steve Carino, Balls Mahoney, Axel, guys that couldn't have got over anywhere else. Paul saw something in us and give us the platform of what you said earlier. We would never get time limits. We would never have a script to go off of. He'd give us an idea of what to do and let us run with it. Yeah. Well, he trusted us, I, and we did. I'm going to correct you. It wasn't that you guys couldn't get over anywhere. It was that you guys wouldn't be given the opportunity to get over it, Well, exactly. You're exactly right. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be given it. Because, you know, I was told right before I got my job at ECW, at the WCW, when I was at the WCW power plant, that – they were a marketing company that I was an okay wrestler, but I didn't have what it, they didn't think I had to look to be a wrestler and they could make <laughs> money off of. Yeah. I'd, I'd love somebody to give me the definition. I'd love the, the smartest guy in the business, whoever he may or she may be. I'd love them to give me 
what is the definition of a heel, baby face? Who's going to get over? Who's not going to get over? Because if you look over the last 30 years, in, in my experience in the business, there's been a wide range of people, you know, from the muscle heads to the, you know, the uh, the badasses to the the fat guys to the ugly to the, you know, what when, when I was a kid in the business, a heel was not a blonde hair, blue white guy, and but that's that's what I'm talking about is that this, you know, how does WCW at that point look at somebody and say, well, you know, you're not exactly what we expected because we envisioned this or that or the other thing. Well, you know, I, I think in large part, when you start to ask yourself, why did WCW go to, out of business? That, that had to at least be a part of the equation. Uh, what well, that was one of the things when they told me I didn't have to look and uh, I did a match at TNA when they were still TNA and they give me the same thing was to get in shape, <laughs> get in better shape. And Terry Taylor, I, I told him what they said. And he said, you look like a freaking man, CW. He said, yeah. That's what Anderson's do. He said, Anderson's look like men. You look like a man, a man. He said, who cares if you have a, a stomach on you, you're, you're, you're not muscled up and you don't have, you know, long hair. He said, you can work your ass off and you can work circles around most people. He said, and again, you're an Anderson. Anderson's look like men. Well, that's that. That to me, and in, in, in my humble opinion, therein lies what's wrong with the business today. Is you, you put on a WWE show. If you would pixel out the faces and pixel out the outfits that they're wearing, I, I would swear you'd have a hell of a time trying to figure out who's who. <laughs> Because they all do the exact same moves, they they're all built exactly the same, and completely contrary to what I was taught coming into the business a long time ago, when Scott Irwin said to me, "Kid, don't try to be uh, diff- don't don't try to be original because everything's been been done," and he went through the litany of all the different characters and he said, "Just try to be different." And that was what we heard at that time ad nauseum. Every, all the old timers would tell you, try to be different, try to be different. And, you know, as a young kid, you're trying to learn the business, and they're telling you to be different. Well, how do you be different? I mean, you know, and, and, and after a while, you sort of just fall into something, or you start to, like water going down a funnel, you know, goes from the wide part, slowly gets tighter, 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 until you get on the, the hole. Uh you know, when it sort of just becomes like a light bulb in your head going off. But today, the industry to me is so cookie cutter that, you know, they're as impressively athletic as the kids are today. And I'm I'm stunned every time I watch them at what they can do athletically. But none of it does anything. And I just watched the Saudi Arabia show and – from almost start to finish, I was in a venue doing a, an interview and uh, talking with fans, but I kept a good eye on, on the show, and it, I, I can honestly say, and this is not a slap at any of the kids, it did absolutely nothing for me. It just was droll and watching it. Um, I heard it was bad. Yeah, but it goes back to 
how does somebody say to you, look at you and go, okay, I'm looking at you right now, and I can tell you, you don't have what it takes to be a star. Because I can take you through wrestling history and say, do you think this guy was going to be a star? Do you think that guy was going to be a star? Mick Foley. When we were coming into the business, bodies were were it. And, right. uh, you know, so at a snapshot in time, in fact, I remember Mick early on having a damn tough time getting himself booked. And yet he's one of the biggest names of the last 25 years. So, you know, to anybody, and this isn't just a slap of Paul Heyman, for anybody to look and say, well, you don't lay a star. Well, what exactly does a star look like? Because if you go back to, uh, you know, I, I, I before Stone Cold Steve Austin, I don't remember any bald guys flipping middle fingers drinking beers being stars. No. But, but, you know, once one comes along, that creates the marketplace. It's just uh, hilarious to me when you get any of these guys involved in any of these offices trying to explain what the industry is or what's going to get over and not get over, and they've never had boots on their feet. Uh, it, it astounds me. It's so condescending. It, it, to me, it's tantamount to me going to the – when my car won't start and I take it to the, to the, to the uh, repair shop and me looking at the guy and saying, don't turn that screw – you ought to turn that screw over there because that, I think that one looks better to turn. Uh, and yet that's what our industry has become in the last quarter century, unfortunately. Right. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm sorry. Wait, hang on, John, sorry. I'm going to jump the gun just for one second here. You know, you just talk about look, and, and John, I don't know if you're going in this direction, but look has completely gone out the window in, in 2018 because we got to give everybody their due and we got to give everybody an opportunity and whether or not, you know, that's going back to the Daniel Bryan debate from a few years back that if you didn't look like a star and especially the WWE, then you weren't getting right. pushed. But when your hand is pushed, you know, and you got to push those guys based off of your crowd response or how people are taking to them. You know, do you feel like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, any of that would have occurred even if the fans had gotten behind it? Uh, in the case of a guy like Daniel Bryan, who obviously the fans uh, revolted and made the WWE push him. Are you Shane, you're a better you got, Shane, you're a better historian at this. You you take this question. When it comes to stuff like that, you're way better at it than I am. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I, I disagree with that. But, I, no, I, that was not the way the industry was run back then. You know, you have – Again, if you look at Shane Douglas becoming the franchise character, in 1993, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys with a trim waistline were not heels. That you know, heel had to have a big beer belly and a wart on his chin and hair coming out of that wart, a la rest your soul, Debbie Beaumont. But uh, <laughs> you know, but that that was you know. So to go to your question. You know we've gone we've gone through these incarnations of, you know, big guys, athletic guys, smaller guys, whatever it might be, but that was not what was considered a heel at that time. And so as you roll through that and look at where we stand today, how much faith does anybody, any wrestling fan out there, have in the WWE to say, okay, I've now identified. 
fifth guy that I'm going to push down your throat and going to get that person over. Uh, because when you look at like Shane Douglas as just a snapshot, Shane Douglas, who was the franchise character going in there, was transformed into Dean Douglas, this cartoon character that had <laughs> as boring of a delivery as you could possibly give. So it's not possible in my mind for me to sit like a mad scientist in a laboratory and saying, okay, I'm going to create this new character that this, that, and the other thing before I see the person that I'm applying that to. If that person doesn't have the skill to execute that particular character, and yet Vince, I think, had it the flip, flip side way as, okay, I've got this idea for this character and whoever the next person to the front door is that we hire, yeah. apply that to them. And like I always say, like if you told me to be a gay cowboy, I'd be terrible at it. A, because I'm not gay. B, because I'm not a cowboy. And uh, that I think it would bleed through very quickly in the character. And uh, no matter how I try to portray it. And therein lies what I think is wrong with the industry today. And answering your question, uh, uh, Chad, as to how that comes, you know, what comes, and it basically boils down to what comes first, the chicken or the egg. And I think in this case, the sports entertainment, a la WWE, has taken to the point that the character comes before the chicken or the egg. It, it takes a special person to be a heel. And in today's, from what I've been watching, that nobody wants to be a heel. Because when I was a heel, I didn't give it. I didn't give a damn if the fans liked me. I, I wanted them to hate me. That was right. my job. If I could get you so mad that you would cheer for any person they put in the ring with me, I was doing my job I, to the point where you were almost jumping the guardrail to fight me. Right. Um, I didn't go out there. And, I didn't go out there and pick a fight. Um, I would I would do enough to piss you off, and that's what it, uh, that's a lost art today because everybody wants to be over. Everybody wants to hit all these high flying moves, and the fans can cheer for them. How many times do you watch guys nowadays when they hit a move, they hold their hands out to the side like, "How great was that?" Cheer for me. Right. Well, that's everybody Nobody, that hits that move. Today. Yeah. Everybody wants to, everybody wants to be over with the fans, and and if you guys don't want to be heels now. Everybody wants to be liked because it, if you're liked, then you sell more T-shirts, you sell more merchandise, yeah. you get more money. Yeah. And it wasn't well, until a, a few years ago that I sold merchandise because I never come out the back because I wanted to distance right. myself and I didn't want I didn't want fans to humanize me and you know I wanted to be that whole afraid of me like they were at ECW. But you know, it, like you said, our, the, it's, the business has changed too far. Uh, yeah. I think far too. Too far from it, uh, you know. When you can't identify, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going going 39 years uh, in the business. When I watch an independent match, and I can't tell watching two kids walk to the ring which one's the heel or the babyface, and then I can't discern based on what they're doing in the ring. Uh, I would dare say that they're probably not doing something right. Uh, and that's not because Shane Douglas is so smart. It's because the industry is the industry. Uh, that if, you know, like you said, a heel going to the ring, 
Your job is not to worry about how many T-shirts you're going to sell later in the night. Your job is to piss the audience off and to get, you know, that audience. We've gone into a time since ECW and, and relatively shortly before where fans started taking an affinity for the heels, but that's a, that's still a minority number of the fans. So in no way, shape, or form should any heel be going to the ring and saying, I'm going to do this less or differently because I'm worried about my T-shirt sales. Your job is to piss off the, the largest number of people you can in that building to push them towards the baby face and and carry out that that function. I don't know how, how much more to say that, but you don't see that anymore in sports entertainment or on uh, what you watch on Monday nights or whatever night SmackDown is on now. One of my one of my stories I tell with how what it takes to be a heel was I was working Balls Mahoney in Alaska one night. We were in Anchorage, and there's three or four thousand people there. Before the show started, Balls sold no gimmicks, none whatsoever. He wrestled yeah. me in a hardcore match, and I healed the crowd and healed him to the point to where when he won, he got over on me went to his gimmick table right after our match, which was intermission, and sold over $1,000 in gimmicks. And he'd give me a percentage of it for being, because I didn't sell gimmicks, for being the heel that got him for the fans to get behind him. That's what you're supposed to do as a heel. Right. Absolutely. That's pretty cool, but I'm sure that's not commonplace. Is that commonplace that, you know, a guy like Balls would give you a percentage of merch and stuff like that? I've I've never had it happen before or since, and he said, he Balls told me, he'd give me the money that night, he'd give me a percentage of it. I said, what are you doing? And he told me, he said, before I went out, I didn't make anything. He said, after my match with you, he said, you pissed him off so bad that he said, I sold over $1,000. He said, this is how it was supposed to be done. He said, you're not supposed to sell gimmicks as a heel. He said, I give you a percentage of it for making me a bigger baby face. Absolutely. He's the only person that's, that's ever a, done that. But that's a pro. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what it gets down to. It's, uh, you know, we always hear every week, every month, every year, we hear people say the business has gone off the rails. The business has moved too far away from what it's supposed to be. We hear these cliches. And, you know, for some fans sitting out there, especially if you're a Paul Heyman fan, it's easy, it's easy to say, well, CW, sour grapes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, fill in that blank. That makes it nice and neat and tidy. But there's always these things I call, as Chad, Chad and JP will tell you, those damn pesky facts. You know, when you get to those damn pesky facts, <laughs> And, you know, you're into this, like, i.e., the stories that you've told and the information you've told consistently now over the years. And uh, the industry being what we know the industry is supposed to be, and yet there's still these, uh, you know, these pieces of, uh, of the story that sort of fall the way that the fans want them to fall. I liken it to fake news. So I want to believe CW is a jackass. So CW is a jackass. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It's just I, as a fan who follows Paul Heyman or whatever, 
I want to believe that, so I'm going to believe it. Doesn't matter what what evidence you can give me, or and and or if I'm even looking for evidence. Uh, have you found that to be a a problem moving forward in the business? And if so, how do you overcome it? No, nobody wants to know the truth. Yeah. They they don't they want to they want to believe because more I guess more people speaking of that instance more people knew Paul than any, they knew of me because one of the comments that I got in that thing was one of these goofs that like Paul stuff said who is C W Anderson to call himself an E C W original <laughs> that they don't want they they don't want one obviously you don't know what the hell you're talking about and but also they don't like you said they don't want to know the truth. It's it's the one of those things is fans dictate matches now by the chance and the things they're going. You yeah. I've sit there and watched them uh, watch them dictate what fans do and they they moved them how they wanted to. Um, but nobody they don't want no truth. They want to they want to believe somebody like Paul. They don't want to believe somebody like me, which is fine. But if it takes too much effort to learn the truth. And you know, the, our our short attention span, which I always say this, you know, goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds. Humans have one of eight seconds. Hmm. That's fact. Look at wow. you know, I gotta do is Google it. Um yeah. but it shows you they, they just want to read something real quick and be done with it and move on to the next thing. And they definitely no try to hijack the matches and, and do chance oh, yeah. stuff and kinda of take over try to take over the shows. I've done four where they've chanted boring in my match and me and the guy I was working stood in the corner. He went to one yeah. side, I went on the other side. You're not going to dictate what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> but but what's that came first? I, and, and, and this is a question I have in general. What came first, the chicken or the egg, in the sense, did the fans start those chants after the WWE started the whole smell what the rock is cooking and all those things? Uh or is that something that the fan? Because I don't remember ever hearing fans chant a you know a unison chant. Uh, what unless it was something like you know you know kick stings and kick Flair's ass to sting or something like that. But you know not the you know the A B C D chant that yeah. that we've yeah, heard that had become a lot of that was WWE. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of the, you know, the, the rock stuff. Uh, Road Dog Jesse James with his when they were DX, listening to that thing. Everybody had to have that one little hook or that saying that everybody could get behind. Um, right. That don't, I don't remember them saying much of it at ECW unless you know, they would chant DC, the ECW thing. But as far as yeah. – I don't remember anybody having that kind of hook. You no. know, Taz would beat me, beat me if you can, survive if I let you. Right. And they would get behind that. You know, of course, everybody was singing Sandman's 36-minute entrance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, but I think, I think you're on to something, Shane. It's, you're right. It, it was the WWE stuff of them programming them fans, the fans to chant that stuff. It was a day in and night. You just feed, spoon feed them that day in and day out. They're going to get with it. Yeah. You know, well, Stone Cold did it, too, but, the thing that surprised me with that was, you know, and obviously I'm sure you can understand better than most people. I don't go to the WrestleMania stuff. I'm I'm more than content to 
you know, sit and while my day away, whatever. But uh, I've been to WrestleCons with people that do like to go to WrestleMania. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm, I, it's always easy for me to get a pretty good feedback as to what transpired that night. And for the last several years, I kept getting this feedback from people who I knew that had been to the live event talking about how they would teleprompt like on the, you know, like on the screens. And it started in Dallas was the first time I heard it where they were literally putting on the scoreboards to the fans, what they wanted them to chant. And to me, I can't think of anything more inorganic than to say, okay, C.W. Anderson or Shane Douglas or Tojo or Timbuktu is in the ring. Now we want you to chant this and put it up on the scoreboard. I would be, as a talent, I would be mortified and embarrassed by that, that you've got to put something up on the board to chant while I'm in the ring. Now, to just to go totally, totally random on you guys, I was looking at uh, CW's Facebook probably about maybe a week ago or maybe a couple days ago, and I know Shane has worked with him. And CW, I, I remember this just because I think it was a build-up to Heat Wave 2000, but Bobby Eaton comes in the ring, and he starts laying waste to everybody. You take a great bump from him. I just wanted to randomly ask both of you guys kind of, what are your thoughts on, on just an old-school legend, perfect punch, perfect wrestler like beautiful Bobby Eaton? Um, I, I can actually connect, can tell you a little tidbit about that. Um, Bobby Eaton has, was, and still is my idol in wrestling. When I got into the business, I wanted to be Bobby Eaton. I want to be the guy that can work a broomstick or work Ric Flair and have a five-star match. Um, the first time I got to meet Bobby was that night. And I was so enamored with him that when I came through, we were at the, and, and Shane knows this, we came, I was at the ECW arena and I went back through the gorilla position. And at the ECW arena, you had two big curtains that you had to walk through. The first curtain you walked through was the gorilla, the gorilla position. Then there was a room off to the right where it was air conditioned. You got dressed. A lot of the uh, <laughs> guys did. And then there was the big part in the back. Well, that was kind of an open area. I go to walk in the back and I see Bobby sitting there with Paul. I'm such a mark for Bobby Eaton. I'm like a little schoolgirl that gets to meet Justin Bieber for the first time. I, I, I had to go in another room and collect myself before I went in there and met Bobby. Um, and when I squared off with him that night, I'm trembling when I'm doing the, for him to hit me because I can't believe I'm, you know, in my mind on the outside, I'm C.W. Anderson, the badass hill at ECW, squaring off with Bobby Eaton. On the inside, I'm, you know, 14-year-old Chris Wright looking at his <laughs> idol. Yeah. Um, so, and I do remember after uh, Rob Van Dam told me afterwards, he said, you know, Paul had us in the back. He had everybody watch the monitor, and his words were, he said, you have the two best punchers in wrestling squaring off. Wow. So, which I thought was a great compliment from one from Paul and from Rob and, you know, from being compared. Cause Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker always told me I had the best punch in wrestling. Um, yeah. So being able to, being able to consider squaring off with Bobby Eaton, but that was my little story that I was like a little school kid with, with Bobby that night. Well, that's, you know, when you put two guys in the ring, whether it's Bobby Eaton or Ric Flair or C.W. Anderson or Shane Dunn, when you put two guys in the ring, they know what they're doing. 
then you give them the leeway to do what it is they have to do. It's very unlikely in my experience that the promoter, whoever that promoter may be, uh, who's promoting that show that night, has a real clue about what's A, going into the storyline. So if Shane Douglas and, and, and C.W. Anderson are going to the ring tonight with some big angle, uh, it's pretty unlikely that whoever's promoting that match or that particular card really understands in depth all the weeks, months, maybe year, year and a half that we've put into that storyline to give it its proper due. So in my mind, smarter for whoever's promoting that show to step back and say, let's let these two pros go to the ring and do it. Like you're saying with you and Bobby Eaton, uh, let them go to the ring and do it. How do you micromanage a Bobby Eaton? How do you micromanage a C.W. Anderson and say, you should be doing this or be doing that, as opposed to just letting these two talents go to the ring and execute what they've spent their life learning. To me, it's just uh, mind-boggling that anybody would say, well, CW, I think you turned, when you turned to your left, you should have turned to your right, or you threw that punch the wrong way, or you did this or did that. Let the professionals do what the professionals have to do. And if they fuck it up, ring their ass when they come back. But give them the platform and the latitude to execute the way that they know they're going to execute. I've never met anybody in this business, CW, have you, that intends to go to the ring and put on the shittiest performance they can put on. I've no. never never met that person. No. I still, you know, I've been doing this going on 25 years, and I still get nervous when I walk through the curtain because I want to put on the best performance I can. I don't want to let the fans down. Sure. And that's how we, that's how most of us, and if not all of us are, we want to give the best performance we can. Yeah. I, I and you know, Paul, it, so. Paul, Paul didn't micromanage us that night. He, his, his thing was, he said, CW, when you get back in the ring, draw a line. He said, I want you and Bobby to go toe-to-toe with punches. He said, I want to see y'all throw those punches. That's all he said. Yeah. It was, we came up with the rest. And it worked, didn't it? It, it, was, it got over huge. There you go. Shane, Shane, with your, you know, experiences, obviously, you know, you've wrestled Bobby Eaton before. Have you worked with your idol? Who who would your idol be? Have you had that kind of C.W. Anderson moment like he had with beautiful Bobby? Oh, God, so many times. I mean, you know, for me throughout my career, I've had the blessing of having come into the business at the time that I did and looking up to almost everybody in the dressing room. I mean, you know, my first night in the WWF, the old WWF, coming in to do jobs, Dominic Danucci just sent us there to do jobs, just to get experience and learn. But my first night there, I worked with Randy Savage, was my first ever uh, WWF experience match. Then uh, Jake Roberts and Harley Race, uh, uh, Paul Orndorff. I, I can't remember exactly the order, but I, I know I worked with Randy Savage, uh, Butch Reed, Paul Orndorff, Jake Roberts, 
and Harley Race. That was that were those early, and every one of them, I was a huge mark for. You know, I each one of them walking to the ring was so intimidating because these guys all were lords of the life and all incredible talents in their own right. And in some cases, legends in, in the industry. And, you know, to step into that and walk in, you know, as a young snot-nosed punk, I don't really how to lace my boots. And walking to the ring in front of a crowd of 10, 15,000 people, screaming out, you're going to get your ass beat, you're a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. And inside, giddy that you're getting to wrestle these guys that you grew up watching. Uh, you know, for me, it was just a dream come true. But from each one of those, and I'm sure CW can identify this, from each one of those matches, even though they were job matches, underneath matches, however you want to, you know, uh, title them I learned something from each of those guys that I worked with mm-hmm. whether it was in the ring or after the ring Randy Savage and uh, uh, Bobby Heenan and Paul Orndorff all three of them after the matches that I had with them on WWF television came back and thanked me afterwards for the match and all three of them reminded me that if I ever intended on having a career in this industry to always remember the people that put me over in the ring and never forget to say thank you. Uh, you know, so those are the thing, little things in my mind that stick out in looking back at that career uh, and having the opportunities that I've had. You know, it's, it really is it, it's, it, They're interchangeable. You know, you can take my name out of that story and put somebody else's name in there or ask CW to fill in the blanks of the people that he went to the ring with, like Bobby Eaton, whomever. Uh, But it's a consistent story throughout. This is how uh, uh, our industry, it's like an old saga that gets pulled from cowboys and Indians and handed down and handed down and handed down. It's the same story in this industry. When you take somebody who's a fan of this business, who loves the wrestling industry and comes into it and then gets to step in the ring with that person that they grew up idolizing and could never imagine themselves being in the ring with, uh, I would dare say that everybody who's ever become a star in this industry has had that exact same experience at some point in their earlier career, having stepped into the ring with somebody they could never imagine themselves being in the ring with. My, you know, another, another one of my quick ones was just past October. Um, just you know, six months ago, it's myself and Shane Douglas managed by JJ Dillon versus the rock and roll express. And the finish was JJ was tossing me his shoe in the ring to hit Ricky yeah. Morton with while Shane held him. And I'm sitting yeah. here, the shoes flying in. I said, "Oh my God, I'm JJ Dillon is tossing me his shoes." <laughs> it was coming. And you know, this was just six months ago, and I'm still having my little markout moment because I grew yeah. up and you know, me growing up right outside of Raleigh, where I still live today, Raleigh, North Carolina. It, it, you know, the, the hotbed of the NWA was the Four Horsemen and the Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express. Those guys. Amen. Yes, and it, it was just another mark moment for me. And we all have them. That's. 
are part of the reason we're in this business. And if you, when you stop getting it like that, and you know you stop getting nervous, it's time to do something else. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you two seem to cross paths a lot now uh, on the independent scene, which is cool. And I think, you know, like you said, CW, where some, you know, dumb Mark might not realize you were an ECW original, because obviously they don't have any kind of uh, wrestling knowledge. But if you look deeper, you would think just by what we know now about wrestling that you guys may have passed each other or you worked with each other. But no, Shane was gone from ECW by the time you started there. So I think it's so interesting that you two have a worked so close together over the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so, and that you guys have such a cool relationship being that you passed each other, Shane leaving CW literally starting his career in ECW as Shane was, was exiting. It's just kind of cool to see how the dynamic works its way out in the wrestling business. Yeah. Shane, Shane was gone. I've, you know, I've, I've known Shane's work for a long time, even before ECW. I always remember his notorious one with him throwing down the, uh, the ECW belt. Or excuse me, the NWA belt was from, for the at ECW, and then it was years later when Shane and I finally did meet, and he was running his own, doing the hardcore homecoming and things. And then over the years, we've shared the ring together, tag partners, opponents, um, and I have, I've always I've always had the most utmost res- respect for Shane for his work and for his willingness and his ability that he is going to tell you what's on his mind. Damn the consequences, yeah. Shane's going to tell you that, and that's what I've always liked about Shane. Well, for me, it's always been like like the flip side. Thanks for saying that, but I, for me, I I'm such a fan of wrestling. I love pro wrestling, and like I've often said, I can watch pro wrestling 24 hours a day. I can't watch, and this is no jab at any of the kids there. I just I can't watch sports entertainment the way they produce that show. It does nothing for me, and that's not just me, the old grizzled wrestling veteran. That's me, I can remember the 10-year-old kid that loved professional wrestling and comic books and Kiss and all the rest of it. I wouldn't be, if I were 10 years old today, I would not be watching Monday Night Raw tonight or SmackDown or anything else. What always impressed me with, with CW and and uh, a lot of the guys that I've worked with uh, from three CW whatever was that when I watched CW, it reminded me of professional wrestling. It doesn't remind me of sports entertainment. I don't see uh, uh, CW doing backflips and not selling or selling something for three seconds and jumping up and doing a backflip off the ropes. I don't care if the audience is responding to that. The audience would probably respond to me raping an 80-year-old woman, too. That doesn't mean that that's a good thing to do. Uh, It's a question of can you bring that audience to its feet and sit them down like a conductor, like CW exactly. does. You know, when, when when he's working, you get the, the gist that, that, that this is an old-school wrestler uh, going out and plying his trade, which is what the industry is supposed to be. It really is. Like It, it keeps, you know, not to keep beating this over the head, like, you know, because you guys, uh, Chad and, JP have heard me how many times over the weeks uh, over the last year talk about Bill Watts. But Bill Watts used to say, black hat, white hat, that's wrestling. And it really, truly is that simple. It, it is. It, because, you know, you know, like for the rock and roll, one rock and roll expressor is still wrestling. They're getting 10 and 12 year old fans to chant rock and roll. 
who were <laughs> no ways around when rock and roll was on top and in their primes. Yeah. Just because they, there's the great orchestra conductors. Set them up, right. bring them up, set them down. It's like a roller coaster. But by, yeah, but by, but by sports entertainment a la WWE, that's not possible. These two guys are old and over the hill. They couldn't possibly entertain a crowd. And yet they do it. You and I have seen it night after night we after were. night. And, and, and we're in the ring with them and, and, and saw it firsthand. Mm-hmm. It's astounding yep. and so simple when done properly. No, that's so cool. And it, it's a great match, too. You can actually uh, you can find it on YouTube. I've, uh, I've actually watched it. So you can uh, go out and find it. And uh, please, we actually uh, we do implore you to do that and, and brush up your knowledge on uh, the pairing of CW and Shane and also see them battle each other. Uh, from not too long ago either, in a three-way against uh, James Storm, where that that franchise, man, he really knows how to sneak in and steal a pin after uh, somebody's done all the heavy lifting. <laughs> yeah. I've learned all there the <laughs> that's, if I, that was actually on my YouTube channel, the, the match that we did. So. And there's a plug for your YouTube channel. And yes, I know, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, what I was going to say was we're going to get into uh, to wrapping up here right now, but I just want to, okay. uh, before we get into all your plugs and we can plug your YouTube channel again, I, I just want to say how happy we are to have you coming to our event in a couple weeks here in Richmond, Virginia. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, and it means a lot that uh, you know we have some vendors on board and that they want to bring in talent, and everybody who's going to be coming to a great wrestling city like Richmond is going to be in for one hell of a day, and uh, we're just very happy to have you, and I'm just very also... <laughs> ecstatic that I could kind of clear our name with you after uh, these two years. I was uh, very excited. I was very excited when John was able to get in contact with you again and uh, get, get kind of clear the two-man power trip's name here. Hey, look, I never blamed you guys for that. This is what, this is what you do. This is your show. You just put it out there. It's up to people to take it how they want to. I never blamed you guys for that. We all know who to blame for this one is. <laughs> Absolutely. It was great to have Paul Heyman meltdown, though, uh, via Twitter. And uh, I'll play a little bit of a part in that. But, yeah, so uh, CW will be joining us at TMPT Con 2 on Saturday, May 19th in Richmond, Virginia. You can go to ATD Promotions on Facebook for all pre-order and ticket information. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're so excited to have you. And, CW, please, before we let you go, share with the listeners of the Triple Threat Podcast where they can find anything and everything going on in the world of the Enforcer, C.W. Anderson. It, my, my stuff's very simple. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is all E.C.W. Anderson. You search that, you'll find me. And I'm always, right. send me a message, I will always respond. I try to keep it simple because I ain't too bright. So everything's E.C.W. Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, C.W., thank you so much for coming on this week. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you back down the road and, uh, Share some more stories, and hopefully uh, after we release the transcripts for this one, that there's not a, uh, a part two of that Paul Heyman meltdown. Or maybe we do hope <laughs> if that. There is, if there is, I'll see you in two years, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> no, if, if, there is, if there is, you'll see us next week or the week after, and, and we'll, we'll have real fun with it. <laughs> exactly. Thank you guys <laughs> for right, having me. Thank you. See you Appreciate right. being there, brother. Thank you, man. Anytime, Sam. Take care. See you guys. Thank you, man. All right, well, we're back here in real time 
on the Triple Threat Podcast. And I joined by CW Anderson tonight. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, Shane, I mean, I sent you the links. I sent John the links, and we kind of were able to uh, dig into this a little deeper, causing a, a huge meltdown by uh, one Paul E. Dangerously uh, and C.W. Anderson feeling the rest. So it was nice to get that story out there and uh, kind of clear our names. But uh, before we kind of get into our rap and, and find out what's going on in the world, you know, we missed you, man. We've been, we almost went into Triple Threat Podcast withdrawals here. <laughs> not uh, not having the franchise at our, uh, at our beck and call, but I'm shocked to uh, see that you checked out a little bit of that Saudi Arabia show because uh, I just kind of wanted to get your opinion of the whole entire ordeal, obviously, it caused a lot of eyebrows to be raised, not yeah. only just in wrestling, but in society where, you know, the, the you know, modern-day wrestling fans had a lot of backlash against there's no women on the show and uh, not right. really, um, I guess, respecting that it's a Saudi law, not a WWE mandate that there weren't women yeah. on the show. But kind of give us your overview of what you were able to see from this basically uh, $200 million house show that took place in Saudi Arabia. Well, for for me, again, you can't, you know, you can't be, uh, uh, how do I put this? You, you can't be the tiger without stripes. So if, if you're pretending to be the, the tiger, uh, and let's in this case put the WWE in there. So WWE has been very forthright and very forward on pushing their women, their divas division, uh, some would argue that that's been the larger portion of the company's in, uh, uh, interest uh, and focus for the last several years. And now go to this mega extravaganza in Saudi Arabia. Now, what some fans may or may not realize is that the WWE had previously gone to Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, both Muslim countries, and had the women, the divas there. Uh, they wore longer outfits, you know, sleeves covering up their skin, respecting the uh, the Islamic traditions in the area. And for some reason, on this show, even though the WWE has put in at least a 50-50 uh, uh, approach to their product, these are either divas, and now goes to this show uh, in Saudi Arabia and sanitizes the women off the show. Now, as a publicly traded company, that might be fine if you're a company trading in Saudi Arabia, but as a publicly traded company, I'd be I would love die to hear what the investment groups in the WWE think of them, the WWE, sanitizing the women off the product in Saudi Arabia. But I'll get to my uh, my judgment of the show in a second. But when, when you look at that and then you say, here's WWE who for the last 10, 12 years has pushed the hell out of women and the divas and have taken them to Islamic countries like Qatar and United Arab Emirates before. Now suddenly they're going to pay some special attention to uh, some law in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> even though they've previously been to Islamic countries in the past. Uh, I, I mean, 
to me it seems so disingenuous. But if you if you followed along with the the postscript to the show during the show, they had advertised uh, promos from the divas dressed in their typical ring attire, which doesn't quite get over in Islamic countries, and you know the sewing of the skin, etc. And so. What was intended to be a $40 million birthday party to one of the Saudi princes suddenly became an explanation as to how they have, you know, these women on the show so scandally clad. In this day and age, in 2018, I find it hard to imagine that an American publicly traded company would stroll down the alley, you know, that it is, it isn't. I mean, do you have divas or don't you have divas? If you have divas, why are they not there? Uh, if you, they, They've wrestled in Islamic countries previously uh, by wearing altered outfits, covering their skin, and adhering to Islamic tradition. Uh, why not in Saudi Arabia? Um it just becomes one of those questions that, you know, for all these people who today talk about political correctness, and is this a is this an attempt to, to just be politically correct in a certain corner of the world, and to hell with political correctness in the rest of the world? I don't know. To me, it seemed, as everybody knows in this podcast, uh, I'm somebody that follows politics very closely. Is that, Was that an attempt to just placate a certain segment of an, of an audience, or was that meant to be representative of the WWE overall? And I don't think even Vince McMahon can answer that question right now. Um, it was very strange to me. Now, I'll get to my judgment of the show now very quickly. Uh, I was at a venue in West Virginia and was watching the show as I was being interviewed. So I didn't get a chance to pay 100% of my attention to it. I would say 97% of my attention was given to the show uh, because I couldn't draw my eyes from it. Not because it was good, but because, and the people that were at the venue could tell you, I kept every single time something would happen in the ring or on camera, I would ask a specific question. Why did this happen? Or why did that happen? Why did this person do that or do that? Why did they turn this way and that way? How did this person just win when three seconds ago he was laying face down dead on the apron? Uh, It was very difficult for me to get a grasp of what it was they were trying to do. Uh, You know, I can like, dislike a product, but I, you know, like I like or dislike several movies. It doesn't mean that I can't watch that movie and sort of put myself into the thinking of what was the producer or the director thinking when they did this scene. And I could not get a grasp of what, the WWE was attempting to do in that show other than just put on a show and make some money. Uh, You know, it it just seems strange to me. There was, uh, 
you know, there were spots that had no no meaning or not sold. Uh, and then, like, for instance, with Cedric Alexander uh, in the Cedric Alexander match, for the last 90 seconds to two minutes of that match, they're up on the top turnbuckle fighting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, with a whole lot of nothing going on before uh, Alexander gets taken off the top rope with an incredibly impressive bump uh, as the his opponent hooked him in the front chin lock, dropped on the top turnbuckle, and I, they gave it a name online. I forget what the hell the name was. And does a sit-down backflip off the top rope and sort of side headlock takes him off the top turnbuckle as he executes that move. It was incredible. I turned to the person next to me to make a comment, and I heard the bell ringing. And I looked back at the at the screen, and I said, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and Cedric Alexander won. After taking that big bump, after this two-minute fight on the top turnbuckle, uh, won, and now he's standing in the middle of the ring like a, like, you know, Gunga Din who just attacked Asia and took over Asia. And and I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, the kid's a great athlete, but where's the common sense? You know, where, how do you take that big bump off the top turnbuckle and then win and get your hand raised and you're standing on the ring and you just, oops, by the way, you just forgot to sell the move off the top rope. Uh, stunning to me. And that was the way in my mind as I watching that show throughout the course of the night, the whole show sort of transpired that even in the four way match for the intercontinental belt, I, I'm as everybody knows, I'm a huge, huge fan of Samoa Joe. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the way he works, how he executes. I think he's a breath of fresh air in today's industry, uh, as opposed to being just a cookie cutter, good guy, bad guy, whichever way you want. Uh, Joe stands out. He can execute in the ring perfectly well. And yet he has such a unique and distinctive look, uh, and yet, in that four-way match that I watched at the Saudi Arabia show, he was just another guy in the ring. Uh, it could have been me. It could have been CW. It could have been Chad or JP in that position. It didn't really make a difference. And to me, that just screams out what is wrong with that product. When you've got a Samoa Joe in the ring, you showcase that motherfucker. And you do it in a way that makes him look, whether he wins or loses is irrelevant, but you show the world that he sure as fuck looks like he's going to win this match. And yet in that match, he was just one of four guys in the ring. Um, I don't know. I mean, we can go on and on and on. uh, But in my take on this, as you guys know, I'm not a sports entertainment fan. There was nothing that I saw in on that show that, Intrigued me as a wrestling fan. 
It was obviously, you know, an overblown house show. Obviously, Vince did it for the money. I mean, $200 million or whatever it was over the next 10 years. And I guess they're going to be there once or twice a year. They're going to try to run this 50,000 people seated or whatever arena. So it's going to be a big deal to them. And obviously, it's a big money maker for them, big money generator. It's all about the money. They kind of undercut the women in it. The Cedric Alexander match was trying so hard to be something that it, it wasn't. One thing that I noticed is they're doing the, the I love you spot between Michaels and Flair. Flair, who had been in the business for 45 years and was retiring uh, in his <laughs> protege, so to speak, was retiring him. So the I love you kind of thing made sense. The Cedric Alexander thing was so far over the top. Then the non-selling, it, it was, yeah. to me anyway, it, the match was awful. I just, I like the whole thing, uh, that was terrible. Samoa Joe should have been a focal point. Um, yep. I thought Daniel Bryan did really well in the Rumble. I thought Strowman winning was pretty obvious. But the thing yep. that they, uh, the thing with me with Strowman that that just kind of is alarming to me. Like the fans are kind of getting into him, but he's not really very charismatic. He kind of doesn't know. What, he's very green. Kind of doesn't Ugh. know what he's doing at spots. You could tell he's kind of like lost. And then I don't know. He's like kind of to me reminds me of an uncharismatic Big John Stud. Well, it doesn't that. Doesn't that scream out to you, though, where the business is today? So nothing against that kid. I, I, I mean, but you've suddenly put this guy in because he has captured somebody's interest, certainly not based off his, of his acumen. It's not that he caught the wrestling's audience, the, the wrestling audience's attention because he's so damned adept in the ring. He's caught the, the audience's attention because he's so big and so physical. And the company, you know, and I think this goes back to an incarnation of what Vince, of what uh, uh, Steve Austin used to say about Vince McMahon. If he wants to get you over, he'll strap a rocket to your ass. Now, well, to me, that rocket isn't just meaning you get to win every match and you get pushed to the roof, and that means, you know, every time I see you for the next 12 months, you're going to be getting your hand raised and pinning somebody or beating somebody's ass. What it means is, are we building you to a point for you to draw money for the company and then know what you're doing to be able to fill that spot, not just in this next event, but for the next 12 or 15 or 20 events down the road that you're going to be headlining. Uh, You can't blame the kid. If he's a green kid coming in just because he's big and has some uh, some semblance of charisma, that doesn't mean you say, okay, well, let's push that kid to the hilt and, uh, because nobody else is still in that position. If you haven't taken the time to teach that kid what being a main event or a semi-main event position means, then you've fucked up on your end on the job. So, you know, none of us are born with knowing how to be a main event or a semi-main event. Uh, You learn it. And you learn it by being in in the ring with guys that are well-seasoned before you. Doesn't mean that you can't exceed what they have become. So, like, me with Pez Watley in in UWF, I learned an inordinate amount from working with Pez Watley in the UWF ring. Did I ascend higher on, on the, 
on the wrestling ladder than Pez did. I don't know. That would be for others to think, but uh, to assess. But I learned so much from Pez. It's not a question of can I only ascend as high as he got on the card or higher. It's what he taught me, and how do I take what he taught me and take take my career, this character, in this company to a different place and try to push it up the ladder. And that's what I'm seeing missing in, in the WWE today is there's a complete and utter lack of character development. It's just, here's Shane Douglas. He's running roughshod over the company today because we're pushing him, or Braun Strowman, or fill in the blank, Cedric Alexander, fill in the blank. It's just whoever it is that we're filling in that blank with this week, next week, the week after. But there's nothing, there's no concrete undergirding the uh, the foundation of getting any of those kids over to a position where they can truly, genuinely draw. And to me, it's a shame because, like I said, none of us are born with this. None of us uh, get it inherently. You learn it over a long haul. You learn it from being in the room with guys that do know what the hell they're doing. And then to suddenly throw you in the ring, as I can imagine Braun Strowman right now, suddenly getting this spotlight, being thrown in this position, and really doesn't know what to do next. As uh, Right now, that kid's sitting somewhere and thinking, my God, I hope they tell me what to do next week. And the difference of a seasoned talent is, my God, I hope they give me the leeway to show what I can do next week. And therein lies the difference of a seasoned veteran as opposed to uh, somebody's being pushed. And again, I don't. I want to make very clear: I'm not blaming Braun Strowman. He's in a very unenviable position, and I'm thankful at that stage of my career, I wasn't put in that same position because I sure as hell would not have known what to do. He definitely has, you know, a lot of potential, but he's so green right now. And it's funny that the fans are kind of getting behind him. When you, you know, if you're, you know, smart fans, these fans all claim they are now. You could see how how green he is and how he's not really ready for the spot. And he kind of, you know, he's not really knowing what to do in certain areas. And it's interesting. People were are complaining about Lesnar, like get title off him, put him with Strowman. But when you look at Lesnar, he's really only had bad matches. And Strowman was involved with the match because it's almost like this big, young, huge guy is so green. He's yeah. hard to work with. So it's fun. you look at him, it's like only Reigns, somehow Roman Reigns has been the only one to really kind of harness Strowman and have any good matches with the guy. Yeah. Well, but I mean, again, looking from the company standpoint, where do you go right now? You know, the, the, the whole training system has been built around we know better than the talent. We know better than the fans. And they keep pushing in a certain one vein of a direction. And what happens when you get two or three or 10 or 20 steps down that vein and then realize this ain't the guy or this ain't the girl? Where do you go then? I mean, how do you fix it then? You know, you have to do a complete UE and, and First of all, anybody anybody that knows WWE knows that Vince ain't going to say, hey, I fucked up, everybody. My fault. My bad. I fucked up and picked the wrong person. 
So let's double back and let's start all these storylines over again. So I'll try to get it right this time. That's not in Vince's DNA. So, you know, like I said a second ago, I would hate to be in Braun Strowman's shoes that he's been put in this position. And I can take a wild, crazy stab just based off of what I'm seeing and based off of how I know they've run their company for the last 25 years, that they're just looking at this as, we got a big son of a bitch who's athletic, who, has a, who is as athletic as fuck, and let's just push him because. And nobody's really sat him down to explain to him, A, what his character is, B, where they're heading with him, C, what they need him to do or not do. They're just sort of pushing him in a direction. And, you know, a rudderless ship has no destination. And I would dare say that Braun Strowman is right now probably a rudderless ship. Such a uh, such a weird thing that um, I don't know. I, I'm not fully behind the uh, the whole Strowman thing, so I don't really know if I have too much to input on it. But I want to just wrap up the uh, the Saudi Arabia discussion just briefly. Shane, do you like that they're kind of Exploring this a little more, you know, international, uh, internationally speaking, you know, uh, global ramifications. Because one of the things I thought about is that the women didn't wrestle on this show. But who's to say that at some point they don't get them or they do get them onto the show? So do you think this is something that could uh, benefit WWE, you know, um, I guess you could say politically speaking or uh, publicity speaking. Like, you think this is a positive move uh, for the long haul that they've signed this uh, pretty big deal with Saudi Arabia? Well, anytime you can put that kind of money in your pocket, it's a big deal business-wise. The question I would have is, where are all my liberal friends who are, you know, feminists, et cetera, and asking why the company's not – uh, why the, the women weren't involved in the first show in the first place. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not keenly adept at Saudi Arabian politics, other than to say that I know that women are not allowed to drive there. Uh, you know, and it seems to me that all the reasons that Vince, I shouldn't say Vince, I should say the WWE did not, take the women there was as a nod to the geopolitical situation that is Saudi Arabia today. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. I don't see any internal political winds blowing in Saudi Arabia that says that next month, next week, next year, uh, suddenly something's going to change in Saudi Arabia that's going to allow them to have women wrestling there uh, as to why they weren't invited this time. Because like I said, they had been to Qatar and United Arab Emirates before and maybe more Arab countries. Those are the two I know of for certain. And yet uh, they weren't invited to Saudi Arabia this time for some apparent reason. And the only thing that I can come up with is that it was kowtowing to the regional politics of Saudi Arabia, and you know Vince has had a choice. And again, this now this question goes back to the the public investment groups that are involved with WWE Entertainment. 
if you are so pro-female, so pro-women, uh, and uh, portending the things that you say you do, uh, that the WWE does on a weekly and nightly basis on with their company in every other corner of the world, then how do you just take this money from Saudi Arabia and turn a blind ear, blind eye, blind cheek to all that goes with that? It just seems disingenuous. You can't be both. You can't be black and be white at the same time. And you can't be uh, pro-feminist and anti-feminist at the same time. You've got to stake a claim one way or the other. And I think in this case, the WWE fell down woefully badly. And I don't see a future in that. I mean, if the future is 10 years from now, five years from now, or next year, Saudi Arabia is going to allow our divas there if they this and that and the other thing. Sorry, I just... I just see an inconsistency inconsistency in the delivery of that message. The snowflakes came out in droves pretty uh, pretty badly. Uh, it was very funny to see how much they were freaking out about the fact there were no girls on the show. Uh, <laughs> you know, then it was uh, it was also funny to see that WWE played a um, uh, commercial for the arena, which I, I didn't get, like, why they didn't, if it was going to be a problem, why they wouldn't just have it dark in the arena and play it on the network, but there was two commercials that featured just girls on the commercials, and uh, that caused a little bit of an uproar, but yeah, the Snowflakes came out for that, and um, they just got to realize that, look, it, the WWE hasn't changed. I mean, it, it might, corporately, it might, uh, from a publicity standpoint, look a little different on the outside, but at the bottom, at the end of it, you know, Stephanie McMahon, who's a huge part of WWE creative and the brain trust and the, the, one of the top dogs wasn't allowed to go on this tour and they went on the tour and her husband was there and her father was there. In fact, I mean, Vince was, you know, at the, at the Bruno San Martino funeral. And then a couple days later was having dinner with, uh, with the Prince of uh, Saudi Arabia. So, he, you know, they left. They, they didn't care. They went after it. And whether or not it's going to continue in the future, you know, the snowflakes are going to have to realize WWE is going to move on with you or without you. Um, and as you continue right. to hijack shows and, and try to make it about you, you know, it's only going to make them uh, do more outside the box stuff like this because they think that they're getting over with uh, with different audiences. So I don't know. We'll. Uh, We'll see how it all develops, but, you know, it's been a cool return, Shane. I feel like it took a long time to uh, to get it's back on the airwaves here. Yeah, it's been a cool and fun return, and obviously, you know, as we move down the road here, we're going to have more cool shows coming up, and it was nice to have another guest on with CW tonight. Hey, and obviously, you know, it does well, and we, uh, we enjoy doing this. And still, we didn't even get a chance to talk about Dominic and how great he was, but that was a ton of fun, too, a few weeks back. It sure was. I mean, that was, for me to watch Dominic uh, and, and listen to him, you know, we weren't in the same in the same you know, building, obviously. We did the uh, pay-per-view, but to, to listen to him and hear his voice and the tone of his voice, uh, that did a world of good for, for Dominic because Bruno, he and Bruno, I think I've been telling everybody for the last several weeks, he and Bruno weren't just friends were best friends. They were closer than brothers. Uh, even though they grew up very closely together, 
in uh, Italy. They never met until here in this country. And uh, that friendship was forged over many decades here in America, had nothing to do with Italy other than that they were both from Italy and very close together in Italy. Uh, but to see Dominic at Bruno's funeral, just so crushed. Uh, like I said, he, they were closer than brothers. And to see him so, close at, so closely to the time that Dominic's wife passed away, uh, which was six months before Bruno, and to see Dominic now going through this again uh, was heartbreaking. And yet to hear him on the show and hear him telling those stories and reliving the stories that uh, that I had heard, some of those stories I had heard pieces of in all the decades that I've known Dominic, but to hear him telling the stories in the tone of his voice, if you go back and listen to episode 45 and you hear Dominic's voice, uh, it, it, which was literally right off the heels of Bruno's uh, funeral, uh, you can tell that Dominic's mind is in another place and he's much more upbeat. Uh, and it's those types of things that, uh, for me, are very rewarding because I could easily see where somebody like Dominic having lost that close of a friend and his wife six months before could very easily just say, ah, to hell with it and just, you know, let, let, come what may come and instead Dominic uh, has you know rebounded like he did off his wife uh, his wife's passing and he said to me last week and I took this as a very good sign he said to me that he had finally decided that he's gonna wait till 105 and then he's leaving and and I chuckled and I said we're gonna hold you to that Dominic so that sounds great to me but I'm gonna hold you to it uh but it was fantastic to have him on. He's told me uh, multiple times over the last uh, week and a half, 10 days, how much fun he had and he enjoyed doing it. Uh, but you could hear, I think, in, in, in that show, how lucid, at 86 years old, how lucid, how uh, tight Dominic is. Like, you know, he'll tell me, we'll be sitting and talking about, you know, nothing, and he'll say, you know, on, on this date, 1951, uh, and then I'll stop and I'll say it was a Friday. And it was my first day in Montreal. And I, the first time he did that to me, I said, you just made that up, didn't you? And he said, made, made what? I said, the fact that it was a Friday. I said, you don't know what the fuck day, the date it was, the day it was. And he said, no, it was a Friday. I remember like it was yesterday. I, I, it was my first day in Montreal, and there was snow, and he's going through the whole thing. And I pulled it up on my phone and, you know, scroll all the way back to 1951, and sure as hell, it, it was a Friday. <laughs> you know, I, I can't remember what the hell I had for lunch a week ago. And Dominic's remembering some date from, from 55, 60 years ago, uh, just astounding to me. And, you know, for me, it was just really cool having my mentor and trainer on the podcast. But to also hear the stories that he had for Bruno, that 
tightly off of Bruno's uh, uh, funeral. And having seen at the funeral what a that had on Dominic, not just during the funeral, but after the funeral, when Dominic had bl- basically blocked a procession of cars in the hearse, uh, was heartbreaking to me. It truly was heartbreaking to me to see Dominic going through that. Um, so for me to be able to have him on our podcast and give him the opportunity to tell those stories, uh, for me was a plus that I, 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 I wouldn't miss if somebody gave me all the, the gold in the world to not have him on. I would tell him to fuck off. I want Dominic on this show to listen to those stories. Uh, it was, it was, uh, therapeutic for Dominic to do it and I think it made for a hell of a show in his doing it so a win-win situation yeah and if you haven't heard it go back and listen to episode 45 uh, of the Triple Threat podcast with Dominic DiNucci it was a very fun chat it was just absolutely a thrill to finally get the chance to talk to him and kind of do our thing and and kind of digging as much as we could and it was a very cool to get those stories so fresh, like you said, off of uh, Bruno's passing. So please go back and listen to that and hope you enjoyed today's episode with C.W. Anderson. And you can come meet C.W. Anderson at our TMPT Con 2 on May 19th in Richmond. And if we didn't tell you on it with having C.W. on, please go to our website, which is tmptofwrestling.com. You can get the full rundown of who's going to be in attendance as well as the link to buy tickets to come to the show. It's going to be a collection of all-stars from Scott Hall and Kevin Nash to Eric Bischoff to C.W. Anderson to Two Cold Scorpio to Mikey Whipwreck to New Jack to Tony Atlas to Ronnie Garvin, the whole nine yards. Please go over to tmptofwrestling.com and get the full lineup and join us in Richmond on May 19th. It's going to be an amazing day, and we hope you are a very, uh, very satisfied customer if you come to our show. So, Shane, uh, I know it's been a few weeks. We didn't even get a chance to really talk about the fact that your action figure has been released from the Figures, Inc. company. You can get it at WrestlingSuperstore.com. They've got an amazing collection of wrestling legend action figures. And now the franchise has come into the fray. So you've got your Pro Wrestling Tee Store, which is at PWTs, and it's ProWrestlingTees.com slash franchise SD. But in addition to that, we've got the first franchise action figure in like 18 years. So that's Woo-hoo. one awesome piece of merchandise to have out there. Absolutely. Like I've, I've, over the last weekend, uh, I had uh, three people bring the, uh, the, the new action figure up to get it autographed. Um, looking forward to a lot, many, uh, a lot more coming up in the, in the future. But this coming weekend, a uh, very, very rare weekend in the franchise's schedule. I have the entire weekend off. Uh, and, and I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, like, if I have two and a half days off additional this week, what can I do with that? And I've got a million ideas in my head as to what I can do with that, that extra time. So looking forward to that. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the, 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 the pro wrestling tees, the T-shirts are out there. I've had fans talking about that. Uh, the original franchise shirt, the, you know, the, the both God and the Devils have dibs on his soul. Uh, the, I've seen, uh, like I said, a handful of the uh, the franchise action figures from uh, from the Figures Toy Company. 
so lots going on right now, and even though I'm going to be off this coming week, lots of ways to interact uh, and, and get that information and get those uh, types of merchandise and, and things back uh, to me to get signed. If you want to do that, best way to do that is reach out to uh, the franchise SD at Twitter uh, and uh, uh, the book Shane, Doug- uh, Shane Douglas Booking at gmail.com site be the best way to get that done. Get it done. And also, we'll all be at Legends of the Ring in uh, early June, June 9th in New Jersey. So uh, you can come out and meet the franchise with the two-man power trip. We'll just be kind of hanging in the background. But you can come and see us all there in one uh, one room nonetheless. It's always uh, a great spot to, uh, to to get all your wrestling memorabilia signed. And I'm sure there'll be more of the Figures, Inc. toys in effect that day. So you got a rare weekend off, which is interesting. And then the following weekend is going to be crazy. I know you're going to be out on the road that weekend as well. So we'll look forward to hearing all of the details on that. And like Shane said, hit us up on Twitter. It's at the franchise SD and at two man power trip. And please send any questions to the triple threat pod at gmail.com. We are way behind on ask franchise, anything questions, so we'll get to that in the next coming weeks because, Shane, I'm going to give you a little bit of a cliffhanger here. There's another podcast out there that we do uh, – we, we have a little minimal uh, back and forth with. We have a good rapport with them, but they had to record an emergency episode of their one of their shows that they do because they had just viewed uh, the NWA title tournament, and they had on a friend of Dennis Carluzzo that – um, really? I was able to, yes, who gave some insight from the Dennis Carluzzo perspective of everything that went down that night in Philadelphia. So maybe next week we'll look to uh, to cover that. i got to get John the link to take a listen to it as well, and I'm going to have to probably take another listen to it again. But I'm in the process of moving and was able to listen to a few minutes of it. So uh, some interesting little nuggets we'd like to throw at you uh, possibly. Hell next yeah. Week. So little little cliffhanger there. So Shane... As we wrap up episode 46, do what you do best. Take us out in only the way the franchise can and get us on the road to episode number 46 next week. Hey, we're rolling down the barrel and down the avenue towards a big 5-2, the first anniversary. Dominic DiNucci, uh, two weeks ago, which was last episode, C.W. Anderson this week, the best question you can ask yourself right now is, who in the hell will we have on next week? What questions will get answered next week? There's only one way to find out. You can tune in right here next week to get the next episode or get your ass franchised. <laughs>